You might know Nora Loretto from her podcast, Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. If you don't, you should. Loretta's conversations with Sandy Hudson are just hilarious and relatable. They're full of appropriately directed anger and in many ways model a kind of solidarity that is necessary right now. You should also know her from her two books, Take Back the Fight, which I discussed with her last year, and Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the COVID-19 Pandemic. The new book, just released from Fernwood Press, is one of the most popular nonfiction texts in Canada right now, and for good reason. Loretto is offering something that is in shorter supply than rapid tests. Political insight on exactly where the system failed, who it failed, and the roots of the political decisions that led to our current calamitous moment. In this interview, I ask her what the fundamental motivation of the book was, and while that admittedly seems like an obvious question, the answer she gives is far from obvious. What is essential about documenting this dizzying time in detail? Why is it crucial that reporters and social critics document everything and think through what Loretto calls the moving target of the pandemic? She insists here that if we don't, then we know that the virus's impacts on especially the marginalized, those trapped in a hollowed out, profit-driven system of long-term care, the women who take care of the care labor required to keep society going, you know, all of these underserved communities are going to be reduced, she says to a footnote, as the country pushes hard to return to something resembling normalcy. Against that wanton desire for a snap back into the status quo, Loretto forces us to dwell with the nightmarish resurgence of straightforward eugenics in this pandemic. The logic of disposability forced on people in long-term care, the apathy shown toward data that reveals the overwhelming correlation between disability, transmission, and premature death, the ignorance of officials who waited for data to confirm the vulnerabilities that organizers and activists already knew existed in a world still deeply stratified by race and class. We end in a somewhat hopeful place by trying to imagine what a robust left media could do in Canada. She says there's obviously a pressing need for independent media to grow big and consequential enough to contest the attrition and monopolization that continues to hamper critical journalism in this country. But she says it can't really grow in the intersectional, multivocal ways that we need it to if we don't address and redress the overwhelming whiteness of the journalistic profession in Canada. This crisis made it feel for a moment like anything was possible. But making change at the root level in this moment, or in that moment, it's hard to know what time we're in, required taking stock of the loss of collective power, the weakening of democracy under neoliberalism, and resisting these reassurances that normal was right around the corner. None of that happened, despite the fact that we could feel that this appeal to returning to some version of normal was maybe always a false promise. In the first months of the pandemic, fear felt omnipresent. Now something else seems to be intensifying, fatigue. And fatigue can be fatal. So, you know, this is, uh, you're coming back to the podcast, which is exciting. Uh, I'm glad I didn't sort of scare you off the first time. Uh, <laughs> and congrats on this new book, Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnose the COVID-19 Pandemic um, from Fernwood. Um, it's, it's an incredible book. It's so useful in the way that it combines journalism and a deep analysis of power structures, which 
I think is a thing that you're saying journalists should be more aware of. Um, the book is, is it's giving us a chance to assess what's happened over the last couple of years. And so what's interesting is that you're looking backward while trying to find a way conceptually to organize the material and move forward. And mm -hmm. the way you do this is sort of by, it seems to me, centering the experiences of marginalized groups, uh, groups of people that are precarious, that are underserved by their governments. Um, or, I mean, you're talking about the Canadian context specifically, like groups that have been robbed blind by economic underdevelopment in Canada. Um, you know, so you're, these are, these are in a way the thematic clusters of the book. And so I'm wondering, first of all, like how you came up with that structure um, mm -hmm. and, and in imagining the structure, how you thought the book would be taken up and used um, either perhaps by social movements or by people developing policy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, my first goal with the book was to just record it all was to have everything written down because I had decided to write the book in August 2020, which was five months after I'd started the nightly collection of death information related to long-term residential care. And to do that work meant I was just consuming an incredible amount of journalism and information from public health and just writing about the pandemic. So when in August 2020, my last book, Take Back the Fight, had just been sent off to like the presses. <laughs> and it occurred to me that if I wasn't on top of the of the moving target that was this pandemic and writing about it as it was happening in real time, I was going to miss a window of opportunity to really understand what happened in a sense that like presence and place offers that retrospective thinking and writing does not. Um, and and it's, it's hard because usually you want that retrospective. You usually want that time to be able to sit and, and think and synthesize um, what's, what's going on. But by, by August, I was starting to see the same patterns replicate themselves over and over. And so when I wrote the proposal for the book, it was actually really easy. Like, I don't think it took me more than uh, 30 minutes <laughs> or something, um, which is not usually how this stuff uh, goes. And that's just because I had had enough um, exposure to the material and I had consumed enough about the pandemic that I knew exactly how I wanted to separate the stories that would be told through this book. And so when I was thinking of, um, when I was trying to decide which the issues I should I should cover, uh, the 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 chronology of the pandemic just became really obvious. So even though I made this proposal proposal in August 2020, and the months of the, the chapters follow months, right? And so the months go from March 2020 to to March 2021, um, and so that meant that more than half of the time had not yet happened <laughs> in my proposal. There were a lot of like you know, brackets, me gesturing with arms to say something. And the, it was good enough for the editorial collective at Fernwood to say, OK, yes, we, we, we know that this will be filled in. But um, but those pressure points, um, you know, racism, disability, workplaces, personal responsibility, xenophobia and the and the rise of, of COVID, residential care, the, the impact on women, the impact uh, on schools. Like it was really obvious to me that that's just how this story had to be told. And so it was actually more difficult to get 
everything into the, the chapters that I wanted to get into the chapters than to just decide how to divide it in the first place. And I, you know, not surprisingly, I blew past the word limit. Like the word limit was supposed to be 40,000 words less than it ended up being. And I, I said to to uh, the folks at Fernwood, like, you know, cut it down if you can. But I, I don't want to see like an entire section on housing activism removed because there's no space. And, and that's how like to the bone I tried to be in writing this. Yeah. And the book is packed. Um, it is a dense book, yeah. you know, and, and in the book, you're you observe that key problems didn't inform coverage of COVID-19 in real time that quote, thin analyses helped the virus do maximum damage. Um, and this despite the fact that um, a huge number of experts and independent media outlets were working to make these problems clear. Um, mm. You know, like this is one of the big insights of the book is that, you know, the, the specific demographic makeup of the journalistic profession, the fact that it is mostly white and male blinded them to the racial politics of the pandemic. Um, and you know, like one of, the, so the most damning thing in a way is this claim in the book that journalism just didn't evolve throughout 2020. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess I wanna ask you like, what are the most important ways that journalism in Canada needed to evolve, but didn't? Yeah, and I should correct you, it's not just white male dominating uh, journalism. Uh, the, the split between men and women is actually not that big. The gap is a couple of people. And so it's really whiteness dominating journalism. And I think it's really important to mention that. Um, the, the, the way that journalism failed to cover the pandemic can be seen in every story that's coming out now about Omicron. Like it's all of the same things are being replicated. And so, you know, rather than giving us national looks at what ha what is happening in the pandemic and helping us compare communities or giving us more information about outbreaks. So, you know, there's an outbreak might happen within a, a hockey tournament. This, ha this happened this past week in Southern Ontario. We're not getting information about like, does public health think that the that the players got it or was it clusters of players and families was it probably because of the cars they shared based on who got COVID, or was it like on ice transmission or was it people sharing hotel rooms at night like there's so many different actions within a hockey tournament that is going to spread COVID differently and still all we get is hockey tournament bad you know outbreak and that doesn't give anybody the information that they need to make decisions in their own lives um, when it comes to sport, for example. Then you move to a workplace and people don't have the ability to make decisions at all. And, um, and, and we, again, have very little information about outbreaks that happen at workplaces unless they become newsworthy, unless they've led to a, a death or maybe the union has sounded the alarm or maybe it's a massive outbreak and so like the company couldn't hide it but like there the, the fact that there was no evolution at all in the reporting and that the reporting today reads as if it could still be may 2020 is i think it's it's a form of of suppressed dis disinformation because it means that people are constantly revisiting the same issues over and over without any ability to stand back and say okay so where actually are we compared to last year are we in a better situation or a worse situation and instead what we have is the the narrative is driven by public health officials and not public health officials who have the power to make the decisions but usually um experts in um yeah i shouldn't have said public health uh, officials it, it's driven mostly by epidemiologists 
podcasts, uh, whether or not they have an official function. And that means like all we're hearing is the scientific angle of like worst case scenarios, right? So, oh, well, if these 100,000 people who aren't vaccinated get COVID, like the emergency system is going to collapse. And it's like they don't all live together in a community like they're separated. They're going to be in smaller clusters than 100,000 people getting COVID at once. Like COVID hasn't traveled like that at all since the pandemic. But they're talking in a different language and journalists are just repeating what they're saying. They're not cutting through any of um, the difference between how a scientist might talk about this pandemic and how uh, average people need to understand the pandemic. And there's, you know, a widespread lack of scientific literacy. So this just creates, you know, confusion and anxiety. And at the end of the day, journalists can say, well, we're just we're just reporting on what the experts are saying or we're just reporting on what politicians are saying. All the while, people who are the most impacted, the people who are the most in communities with the most amounts of, of, of COVID spread, uh, are nowhere. They're nowhere in the stories. We don't hear about where they think they got COVID. We're not hearing about the inadequate, the inadequate policies at work or the inadequate policies within uh, a community uh, or, the, or the community mapping that actually allows us to see how COVID moves from one person to another. And the real danger right now about this this way that that it's being covered, it's like we have an incredibly high vaccination rate, and we are we are facing a very dangerous scenario where. Um, the vaccines will start to look like they're not doing anything because for, from like an average casual watcher, how can we possibly have as much COVID as we had before the vaccines? Like it just doesn't make any sense. And journalists are not actually explaining that. <laughs> no, it's nowhere. You can't get context for that. Um, and so you're absolutely right that like the impression on the public is that uh, potentially vaccines are ineffective, right? And so you maybe have less buy-in there um, and I, you know, I, I really want to come back to um, this idea of suppressed misinformation, uh, and and I guess more particularly, but like journalists as crucial knowledge translators. Like I want to come back to that, but I guess I, I want to, you know, not bury the the buried lead, as it were, and 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 point out that it's significant that from the very beginning, your book talks about a criminally ignored aspect of the pandemic, this catastrophe that's happened in long-term care. Um, so like, I definitely want to come back to data. It's one of the major uh, lingering kind of questions coming out of this pandemic is like, what role does data play in, in government? government? Um, but you know, you're, you're exposing a, a logic of neoliberal disposability at work in this particular part of the story of the pandemic. Your book is unique in that it's trying to answer the question of why the elderly were just left to die. You know, what was, I guess, the biggest insight that you gained about the abandonment of our old folks in these for-profit institutions? Like, and I guess mm -hmm. what place did, because, you know, one of the things that comes out of my reading of your book is that the hospital itself is like an institution that has enormous weight. And so, like, what place did the, the symbolic status of the hospital have? in your analysis of the catastrophe mm. in long-term care. Yeah, and we see this everywhere because the hospital is embodied in the doctor, and the doctor is who journalists have re relied on the most um, to, to explain this pandemic. You know, you can you can turn on the radio at any time of day, and if they've got an expert talking about COVID, nine times out of 10, that expert is a doctor. 
And that is a that's a huge problem because that is a privileged class of individuals who have very different relationships to the healthcare system than personal care workers have or hospital cleaners or certainly patients. Um, I think that the most important thing that I've learned, uh, and I, ha- I give tons of credit to all the, the disability activists who've been doing incredible work during the last two years to make disability front and center, that this is a story of of eugenics and disability above all else. We have this massive system of institutionalization where people who need 24-hour care can only get it if they give up all hopes of autonomy, uh, you know, move into these institutions, uh, be treated like cogs in a profit-developing wheel or profit-making wheel. And, uh, you know, and not all facilities are for-profit facilities, so that the ones that aren't for-profit, they operate under the same logic as the for-profit facilities. And so it doesn't even matter if there's public facilities. There's just as much death in Quebec. I mean, the vast majority of the death was in public facilities because they're operating on these shoestring budgets in private sector logic. And so, you know, looking at the, the place that disability held within society during the pandemic it was very scandalous that disabled activists were not front and center. Disabled experts were not front and center of explaining everything from social distancing to um, to uh, being in quarantine or being at home uh, uh, isolating uh, or uh, to talk about their experiences with personal care workers and, and, and what happens when it, with infection control when you have a rotating cast of personal care workers that are entering in and out of your life all the time or the the individuals actually living within the facilities themselves and um you know as i say there were a lot of activists making a lot of noise about this but i i went back through the media coverage and it is so thin the media coverage on disability is so thin it's it's truly shocking when you consider that um you know north of 90 percent of people who died had some sort of health condition. And then if you want to look at comorbidities, uh, three different comorbidities, which I think we can agree it's a chronic condition. It, there's going to be a lot of overlap with disabilities. That uh, 76 or something percent of Canadians who died had three or more or more comorbidities. So um, the privileging of the hospital space, I think, was was hand in hand with with the voices we are hearing primarily from doctors. And, you know, the hospital setting is a public setting. It's a it's a purely public setting. It's one of the few purely public settings we have in the healthcare system. And so not only did, did governments have more control over these settings than they had over long-term care, and so they can make kinds, these kinds of decisions much easier than forcing private companies to do what they, what they want within long-term care. Um, but they also have been created to these spaces, as you say, that are, are, are more elevated than other kinds of healthcare within society. Um, and that's also because we live in a society where um, we don't really care about preventative care. We don't really care about ongoing care. We certainly, certainly don't care about people who need care for long periods of time, but we're very good at emergency care. And, you know, even even as healthcare is just getting obliterated in most provinces, emergency care remains something that you can pretty much rely on unless you live in rural Canada, as we're hearing stories all over the place of, you know, ambulances having to go really far to find an open emergency ward. 
Um, But even then, even then, the conversation has never been, okay, so then where is Canada's emergency hospital? Like, where is the building of an emergency hospital or building of emergency units? Where is the fast tracking of of professionals for for training? Like, only a few regions in this country fast tracked professional training uh, for personal care workers to, to try and get, you know, many more into the system. And so instead, we're still operating with this crisis, and it's a looming crisis, and it will be a looming crisis until we're very clearly out of it but with an uh, with a hospital system that at the best of times operates at 90 percent capacity <laughs> like it's it's totally it's completely ridiculous and it's all kind of been laid bare like that's the interesting thing like uh if you know where to look like i wanted to talk about this specific reading that you do give of of like the call for more data and how that's actually kind of limited you know like if we if we want to move past just a reactionary position of providing care when it's like absolutely necessary when when people are virtually already dead if we want to move past that toward a, a, a different state of preparedness then we need to take seriously like for example this recent report released by the nuclear threat initiative and the johns hopkins center for health security uh, which measured the degree to which 195 different countries are prepared or unprepared for future epidemics and pandemics. And the report is damning, right? Like they say, despite important steps taken by countries to respond to the pandemic, all countries across all income levels remain dangerously unprepared. So like uh, most countries have not invested in preparedness. There is insufficient health capacity. And, And to your point in spin doctors, Countries are continuing to, quote, neglect the preparedness needs of vulnerable populations. Only 33 countries have a plan in place that considers vulnerable populations out of 195 countries. So, you know, these are coming out at a time where, uh, um, as you see, like in Canada, journalists failed to recognize the consequences of the Canadian government, for example, mismanaging its global public health intelligence network out of existence. This is how you kind of articulate in the book. Um, there was like no interest in the disintegration of that key source of data on emerging threats, which you say in 2006 provided the WHO with 40% of its data on outbreaks. In the U.S., it was the same story. It took PBS reporter Yamiche Alcindor single-handedly exposing the fact that the Trump administration and specifically John Bolton had discontinued that country's pandemic preparedness office. So like Alcindor did everything she could to make that a scandal but it remained a marginal story. In the same way, we haven't gotten any real analysis of why the GPHIN was scrapped or what it could have meant to have it up and running when COVID-19 hit. You know, why do you think that particular network uh, was repurposed to look at domestic threats? And why wasn't there more concern about its mismanagement? Well, there's two different things here to, to, to talk about. One is the GFIN, the, the Public uh, Health um, Intelligence Network, and Canada's data regime. So I'll start with the first. So th- this this becomes news thanks to the work of Grant Robertson at the Globe and Mail, and his investigation into the GFIN was, um, was, was groundbreaking. I mean, it, it identified this incredible failure of um, of what was what was a key pillar of the global early warning pandemic monitoring system. And Robertson's investigation is published in July 2020. And I, I'm, I, when I read it, I was like, my just jaw was on the table the whole time. And remember, I'm reading this before I'm thinking of writing a book at all. I was just like, okay, here, here is the story that is going to turn how, politi- how journalists talk about 
um, this pandemic. And and it was a big story. I mean, the Globe and Mail, like they they did, they definitely did not try to bury this. It was a big investigation in the middle of, um, you know, the center spread and a couple of other pages in, in one of their uh, weekend editions. And no one picked it up. Like it was really shocking how little attention it got. The Globe wrote another story. Um, uh, Robertson wrote another story a couple of weeks later, a small follow up. And then other media outlets started to kind of ask questions. And then the you know federal minister of health said she'd make an investigation. And so then that became the story. And there's a bit of in, in reporting on that from August until uh, February. But then it almost kind of disappears again. Um, by February, we get an interim report. And then the final report gets reported in uh i think it was may or june it was must have been june because as i was writing it there had been no final report and just as i was about to send off my final draft it had just come out and i was like oh my god (laughs) go back to the the top of that one um but what i think is really really fascinating is is how like how the gfin was and wasn't um, referenced in the early days of the pandemic so I went back to do a media scan to see how often this this network was mentioned in in reporting at all because you know we know that there's a pandemic in China we don't know how big it's going to be but you can imagine Canadian journalists are looking for the Canadian angle and so how many investigations or stories or whatever to just say this exists were there actually there were none before March actually there were none until um, I think it was until April and so there's one article like a very big feature in McLean's about pandemic preparedness and um and it was at the start uh, it was published the start of march so it would have been written mostly in february and um and it actually said something like uh you know it, it, the good news is canada ranks like number one or two in the world for pandemic preparedness and reading this report uh, a year later was pretty hilarious because i mean you know like that that was not true but even there they don't mention the gfin which was so fascinating but I, I'm sure that if you were a federal journalist sniffing around the Public Health Agency of Canada, you would have fallen apart upon the GFIN. I mean, this there were there are scientists like Robertson's uh, investigation is only possible because all of these scientists were willing to talk about it, and they were. I mean, I don't imagine he discovered like had a had a brown envelope or anything. I suspect they were like blowing the whistle on um on what happened inside their department. Uh, and so the first real mention comes in April when you have a, a couple of articles, two articles written um, about whether or not Canada's intelligence industry is is prepared to identify global pandemic threats. And so th- then all of a sudden you get this like narrative shift that um, something like the GFIN or, or pandemic monitoring is not a public health matter, but is a military matter. And that suggests, of course, that globally our enemies would be hiding pandemics from us for military or defense purposes. Unlike the reality, which is like all, na- all, all countries in the world will hide their pandemics because they don't want the world to know there's a pandemic. Like, you know, that's that's kind of a normal way that countries operate. No, no country is like, hey, we want to exist to, to tell you about our pandemics. And this is why the GFIN existed, because they identified markers of 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 around like of clandestine markers around the world that could indicate a rise in something so a, 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 an increase in commodity prices or an increase of purchasing of a certain chemical or toilet paper or something to say whoa something is happening in this community let's keep our eye on it 
This is what they did. And then the media turns GFIN only in reference to, well, we had this thing, but it didn't work. It was ineffective. And there was no explanation of that except to say it was an effective suggestion being because it's a civilian agency and not an intelligence agency. So as I'm researching this, I'm like on my own and no one cares about this. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Right. And at the same time, of course, you have this obsession with China and the two Michaels and war with China and everything. Right. So it all fits so perfectly into this ridiculous warmongering towards China. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like the, the book has this really powerful analysis, too, of an ideological clash between intelligence gathering as like a logic and public health as a as a kind of. Uh, as a logic that does not mesh with that, you know, it has its issues, but it's less yeah. shot through with these nationalist anxieties. Um, so yeah, I mean, like that—that's a, certainly a really important thread in the book. But I wanted to talk about about your book in relationship to another major intervention on the meaning of the pandemic. Uh, Benjamin Bratton's *The Revenge of the Real*. Bratton is like trying to look internally at the left and question its position on data and surveillance. And he sees like he really, it's a bombastic book. He's, he's, he's trying to emphasize that data is actually a baseline requirement for any stable, equitable society. Your, your argument is very different because it's, it's a little more nuanced in a sense. It's like hinging on the question of race, especially early on in the book. You know, you're describing what feels like a battle between people who study race from a social and political perspective and the white mainstream, which consistently calls for data to verify conditions of oppression instead of taking seriously the real warnings that ex that are, are known, right? Um, so it, it reminded me of Bratton's point in The Revenge of the Real that, quote, the culture of data matters. So mm -hmm. like, within Canada's data culture, your point is that this, there was pressure placed on statistics. Um, rather than uh, any political will to just support racialized people. And in fact, you make the, the powerful statement in the book that it's, quote, hard to see the pandemic response as anything other than racist negligence. What you're suggesting, I think, is that a data culture that doesn't have people in it who are really good at knowledge translation, that's useless, right? That, yeah. you, you know, so, so much of the book then becomes about this capitalist and colonial apathy in the face of all kinds of alarming analysis that says like the virus the virus is sure to destroy the lives of the poor the unhoused the imprisoned the racialized my question is in the end you know what did looking at canada's data uh, culture of data reveal uh in terms of like the politics of race yeah okay so i think that this goes um cuts really close to the heart of just canada in general we have a we have a lack of data when you compare us to OECD countries that is profound. We have a lack of data on police shootings. We have a lack of data on real estate records, like stuff that you can find out in the United States. You cannot find out here. And so we are in a completely different context. And I think that we as Canadians have been uh, I mean, we accept this lack of data. We accept that we are told things that have very are, are like very thin basis in fact because we are a country based on myth i mean at our core canada is a country based on on, on tremendous myth and data gets in the way of understanding those myths and so um uh the the most boring kind of critique that a white journalist can make is well then we need to have data to collect and demonstrate that 
you know, that there is oppression in Canada, right? So rather than going further and saying, of course, there's oppression in Canada, listen to people who are oppressed, data then becomes used as, well, this is going to be the way to prove and to test the anecdotes, to, to demonstrate that this is, pr- that this is pr- uh, provable, right? And I, I think that that's really, really fascinating because, you know, it, it then obscures the fact that we absolutely do have a data deficit. In, and you can see it in a whole bunch of different ways. You know, so for example, during the pandemic, there was very rarely situations where we would get an update of where like the hotspots were in Canada. Like when I'm seeing news from Halifax about how bad it is here, where does that compare to Calgary? Where does that compare to Regina? Like, what does this mean? And there was so little comparisons that there, that we didn't have this conception of, oh, things are really, really bad there until things got extremely bad. And then that was the story. But this was not a normal uh, part of pandemic reporting. T- today, I was talking with a journalist in Montreal, and um, we were looking at comparing like data today versus last year today. And um, how many more cases we had, how many more hospitalizations, how many more cases in the ICU, how many more deaths. And we're both able to do it very quickly because Quebec has a, a, a statistical agency, right? The, the, the INSPQ is a public health data agency. Nowhere else in Canada could you do, like, could you look that up? You would have to, <laughs> you would have to crawl through websites. You would have to crawl through spreadsheets. You probably would have to actually request that specifically from a ministry to get something as basic as that. But even though we have no data, the like people in power managed to make people on the ground afraid of data when it came to this ridiculous app that they created. So like the only deep conversation we had about surveillance and data collection was this completely useless COVID alert app that then became the sum total of the federal government's job in managing the pandemic as it related to individuals in their communities. Mm -hmm. Just a complete distraction, really. I wanted to maybe pick up on that that point about myth in relationship to, um, you know, just the fact that uh, pandemic preparedness, the response to COVID-19 was in no way a globally coordinated thing. Um, like, this is something that Bratton really seizes on in his book, right? He, he says, like, from his perspective, one of the most striking things that the pandemic demonstrated was the preeminence of nationalism as, like, the mm. exclusive way of organizing people socially. You know, that means that you're then dependent on a bounded, sovereign political system to survive. And that system Mm. might not be even interested in ensuring your survival. You might, in fact, live in the wealthiest country in the world and still be compelled to catch and transmit the infection. So, like, you're focusing specifically on Canada. But I think, you know, I think of this one point in Bratton when I was, you know, reading the section of Spin Doctors where you talk about the various reasons for political inaction in Canada. And, like, one of, you know, one of the consistent claims is that it's really jurisdictional constraint that handcuffs us in Canada. You know, you write that, quote, uh, jurisdiction has always been used to explain why certain things are not possible. And I think that's, again, like known to characterize the U.S. Like people have a good sense of the ways that states' rights complicate things. It's, you know, in the, it's in the front of people's minds currently because of the politics of reproductive rights. But it's not as well understood here. Like, how can we gain insight on how it was invoked to justify inaction during the pandemic, which we are still in, by, for example, looking at the current controversy over Bill 21 in Quebec. Like, Trudeau is invoking jurisdiction again 
to kind of defer any sort of responsibility. You know, what what mm-hmm. what is it about jurisdiction that allows that in Canada? Well, I actually think that jurisdiction is fake and and both the pandemic and Bill 21 have demonstrated how fake it is. So with Bill 21, um, there is like if the federal government wanted to make a like a crisis in Quebec and make it so much worse for those of us fighting Bill 21, they would invoke the power that they have to overrule a law provincially. But they never will do that because it will be costly for them politically and they know that it'll push It'll have the opposite effect of what they intend to do. And so in that sense, then then the, then the Constitution is completely ridiculous because then it cannot guarantee equal rights under the law from province to province. And any government that has the majority will in the way that the CAC government has, uh, they, they're unstoppable. Like they're totally untouchable thanks to the way that the Constitution was created. So we have this Constitution that's celebrated all the time for protecting individual rights or, or minority rights, minority community rights. And it can't when a government is like, no, we're not interested in that. So that that's like the, 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 the absurdist kind of example where you need that federal protection or, or I, don't, I don't know, the federal kind of arrangement to, to guarantee equal rights, regardless of what part of Canada you're in. But we know that there are disequal rights all across Canada all the time. Like healthcare is a really good example of this, right? You know, the, like the fact that um, you can get uh, rapid tests in, in Nova Scotian liquor stores and uh, libraries. Uh, and I have never seen a rapid test in my life two provinces over. <laughs> is a really good example of this, right? And so then you get to, okay, so then what is the role that federalism plays when it comes to sticky political issues um, where someone does have to take responsibility? The thing about Bill 21 is this is the province asserting the power that it does have. Um, the, the, the During the, the pandemic, the provinces kind of asserted their power, but they didn't necessarily need to because it was also kind of like who wants to deal with this big pile of shit. And oftentimes the, pro- the provinces had to because it's a health care thing. But the federal government, um, you know, they often claimed they, that they couldn't do certain things because of jurisdiction. And they absolutely could have like they, they easily could have invoked emergency orders to impose a unified data regime. <laughs> Like something really basic that wouldn't have made Jason Kenney and Francois Legault lose their minds. It would have been like, okay, like we hate you, but yeah, we actually need a unified data regime because right now we're comparing apples to oranges. And, um, and you know, like we don't even have complete death reporting from 2020 still, like in some parts of Canada. So that that's something that they could have done, but instead they turned it into, oh, but healthcare is provincial jurisdiction. We respect the provinces and blah, blah, blah. And uh, and then rather than something like, OK, well, then why didn't you just send a, a, a rapid test to every single family in this country? And the, the, province, the provinces were the ones to receive the rapid tests. And so then it becomes a provincial problem for not distributing them properly. And the federal government's like, well, we did our, our job, even though they easily could have sent them to us. They have the mechanisms to do that, right? Like, Christ, it wouldn't have cost that much more and we would have all had rapid tests. So, you know, this is just a replication, though, of how federalism plays itself in Canada. It's it's federalism is 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 literally the colonial project like it is. Federalism exists for colonization. And the way that we see that happen is through uh, always deferring uh, to deferring to the private sector, always deferring to capital, always deferring to profits. And whenever there's a, a touchy, sensitive issue that a province or the federal government doesn't want to deal with, there's always two other levels of government that they can blame. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Or if stop. that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The buck doesn't stop anywhere. It's like it's and, 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 and always flying around in the air. 
Yeah, yeah. And if it needs to, it will land on the individual. Like that's the other thing that comes out of your right. your book is that, you know, uh, and I wondered if we could talk about this, you know, this like completely ubiquitous kind of, again, neoliberal education and how to think about social problems purely from the perspective of the individual and the individual's responsibility. Um, and I kind of wanted to come at the question by asking about your, I think, you know, brief but important analysis of the bad dad good dad theater of political leadership that really like <laughs> yeah. emerged during the pandemic as you know male leaders felt compelled as you say to craft a version of themselves uh and seize the moment by kind of amplifying a, a masculine persona that an, emer an, an emergency really requires the steady hand of a patriarch um mm -hmm. andrew cuomo in new york right uh, but, you know, it turns out that the semblance of a steady hand can can conceal the presence of a very abusive system. And I guess, like, in terms of the, the pedagogy of individual responsibility, you know, why do you think the spell of gendered performance worked <laughs> on journalists? Like, that they needed to just yeah. not question, you know, this performance of masculinity that was scolding people for not, like, mm -hmm. being more responsible? Yeah, I, I I think that really is what it was. And, you know, journalists in, in the early days of the pandemic were working under tremendously difficult circumstances. And so having a clear and measured approach uh, was very helpful because it meant that you could anticipate what you would get every day. Um, you would anticipate the rhythm of the of the way that the individual communicated. And if you, you lived in Manitoba or um, Ontario or Nova Scotia, you might even get a good story out of the premier losing their temper, losing his temper, right? Like with his angry children for being insolent. Um, but what I always, I, I thought it was very interesting that I didn't see that analysis anywhere. And I don't remember at what point I even came up with that analysis, but I, that, that's in the chapter on gender. And I was very annoyed with how flattened the gender conversations had been in Canada. So it was like, you know, tied to gender-based violence, which is really, really important, but that's like one aspect of it. Okay, so then what else is there? And then you look, okay, well, childcare. Childcare became a women's issue rather than like a parents of young children issue, which it really is. Um, and, and then it was like, but what is happening here? Like every time Doug Ford loses his temper or, or uh, Stephen McNeil tells people to stay the blazes home, people eat it up. And I was specifically thinking about, um, about Francois Legault, my, my premier. Because this is a guy who has popularity levels that have never existed before. Uh, we had more than two parties in the province. So, I mean, as there's been three parties or more, there's ne never been a leader with the level of popularity he has. And um, and I've had a lot of conversations with journalists in the province about, like, what exactly is behind this popularity? And I, I really do think the, 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 the approach for Quebec that is very, very useful is the bon père de, bon père de famille. Like a, an old legal tradition of, of you know, you're managing your, your business in the way that you're managing your family, benevolent but firm. And, and, and Legault was the poster boy for that. So the second I start thinking through that, it was like, oh, no, no, then you start to see it everywhere. Then you realize every single male leader took on one of these stereotypes and, um, and journalists just reported it. Like there was just like, oh, Doug Ford lost his, uh, his temper today. Oh, uh, Brian Pallister started crying today he's really really disappointed with us kids talking about world war one it's just like what the f what is this like journalists you don't have to just eat the, the eat their shit like you know they you can question it it's not a sick they're doing this on purpose like sorry i don't give a rat's ass if brian pallister thinks he's sad right and i also don't give a, a rat's ass if if doug ford is gonna drop a word like 
ass or stupid or or, or um, Steve McNeil talking about blazes, like all of a sudden this becomes news. Give me a fucking break. Like I like if you can't see through that, obviously um, you're not going to be able to see through other kinds of spin. Yeah, and and that's what was lacking. Like I think any any conception of of power analysis and these things were you know seen as secondary. A big part of this in my reading of your argument was the the rhetoric of an imminent return to normal. And that like state of normalcy is really like, if you think about it, it's characterized by rabid individualism, like individual yeah. freedom. Um, and, and yeah, you say like at one point in the book, normal would become the object of almost everyone's desire during the pandemic. Um, and, and I like that, not almost everyone, because not everyone wants a return to normal. Yeah. You know, could you expand on on the rhetoric, I guess, of that of normativity here? Like, how does the the you know aspiring toward a return to normal put us as a public in a kind of de-radicalized headspace? Yeah, well, it it keeps us in this place of suspended discomfort while we're expecting normal to just come back. Um, and so I think that when we were all suspended, I mean, like, obviously, we were suspended in complete unknown for the first five months. And that, I think, was reasonable and made sense because there were a lot of unknowns and our lives were completely disrupted in very different ways. And a lot of us were just like living minute to minute to get through this, trying to be as safe as we can. And then, of course, from the beginning, uh, there are activists saying like the normal is what's killing us. Like the normal is what allowed COVID to do what COVID has done. It's the normal of institutionalization, of precarious work, of uh, low paid income, uh, low paid jobs, um, you know, whatever. Everything that you can imagine as being quote unquote normal in society. Politicians knew that this had a was a potentially radical moment, uh, and lucky for them, the left is not organized in any any uh, fundamental way to have seized on that radical moment. And so, um, you know, while they're making uh, a social program or two social programs that would be the largest cash transfers in the history of Canadian history, you know, the the, the wage subsidy and the and the CERB, um, they were signaling to Canadians that anything is possible. And when you're telling people that anything is possible and their entire normal world is suspended, you then also have to bombard them with the message that normal is just around the corner. And journalists did this, like I, going back and looking at the news and seeing how many times journalists criticize Justin Trudeau for, for not giving them satisfactory answers to how long will this last in March 2020 or April 2020 or May 2020. It's completely laughable. It's completely, it's a complete joke. It's like, why would you even, ask, this man is a drama teacher. Like, he's not a scientist. He's not, the, scientists are saying that you cannot know. Why in the hell would Justin Trudeau know the answer to how long this is going to last? It's 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 theater and you're manufacturing um, a, a state of, of suspended comfort uh, or discomfort of where people are just gunning to get back to normal and so so we so that was that and as you say the way that that's done is by appealing to people's individual um individualism right so that the desire to see a parent or the desire to um do the things that they love whether that's a concert or go back into a restaurant or whatever and it it did it took no regard to the fact that um, things will be absolute hell for anybody that lived through, worked through um, deaths in long-term care. They will have that trauma for the rest of their lives, that their normal is now imbued with hearing the sounds of people dying, right? And hearing the sounds of, 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 the, of the children of people dying, trying to desperately to get inside and being blocked. <laughs> 
And so, and so, you know, we, we have all these personal experiences of what our new normal looks like. And there's absolutely no community approaches or community responses to try and help people get through these, these, these times that are extraordinary. So there's no collective food provision from any level of government in Canada. There's no new health uh, settings where you can go and, and, and have like long COVID consultations or even new health settings that will, you know, take the burden off of emergency rooms like there's literally no community responses and so the response is then de facto boiled down into the individual and as much as we are getting the individual um on one side like individual prevention is the key to, to solving this this pandemic individual coping is also the, the key to getting through the, the pandemic just come jumping off of what you were saying the the pandemic and the unprecedented nature of it has led us to all become like average people have become kind of amateur epidemiologists. But the thing yeah. that, you know, the thing that we have not become, unfortunately, are like amateur social theorists. Like we have not become, <laughs> right. right, like amateur political philosophers. And, and it's actually, it's interesting. Bratton, you know, in, in Revenge of the Real notes that this kind of casual investment in knowing more about the science, science of virology could be like a lasting feature of society and that might be positive, right? Like knowledge mm -hmm. of transmission, entanglement, essential work, vaccines, supply chains, like that's all valuable knowledge. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's still not meaningful if there isn't a robust kind of like uh, left media in particular, like, and I guess like if we, if we want something like, um, you know, an independent media, how important, I guess, do you think a, a robust left media is to allowing the emergence of something like a global, inclusive, networked idea of how the virus moved through society, like giving that to people? Like, otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, where's it going to come from, I guess, is the question, right? Like that personal responsibility narrative is just never going to be challenged. Yeah, yeah. And it's really tough because, I mean, I know a lot of people that have started new left-wing um, endeavors and they're overwhelmingly white. And I think of I think of all the, the, the young journalists that I'm seeing going into mainstream media and they're more often than they have been not white. Um, and so that's a very interesting um, reality, I think, for left-wing journalism in this country, that it is still dominated by that that white guy Marxist kind of approach. And I don't know what it is. Like, I mean, I often feel very outside from that. And and like, even though if I was a dude, I would probably be right in the middle of that world, but I'm not. And I, I suspect it's literally just because I'm not a dude, right? Um, which is interesting. And, and and men are very bad at reflecting on this. <laughs> like they're, 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 you say this to them and they're like, you know, I, I made a joke to Martin at the breach saying, you know, I don't think that a woman would come up with a, a name like that because we'd all be thinking of a baby coming out sideways or whatever the fuck <laughs> you know that's and he's like oh how, how dare you right and so i mean you know you, you do see remnants of this uh, everywhere um and i i think that's partly because um you know funding is very limited and so it's going to self-select the people who are able to be paid the least uh who have the most you know financial capital behind them that's obviously going to skew white um but but I don't I don't know. Um, the, the other you know big issue is like creating something that's networked because the, the more obvious thing that people can do right now is start podcasts or start their own newsletter or something like that. And, and those are great, but they're not they're not creating anything that is 
big enough to take on mainstream media. Um, and I'm I'm in the middle of of trying to figure this out myself. Like like you know I I had I broke stories in 2021. Um, but I, I was rejected on a lot of really important stories within mainstream media. And there's just, I mean, on one side, the political, I mean, my political orientation and, and anybody who's like me has a really hard time publishing in the mainstream media. But on the other side, there's also just very few options, right? When McLean's has gone monthly, the number of, of proper features that get written on a monthly basis in this country and therefore a yearly basis. I mean, it's like what? It's probably not even 100 anymore. So, you know, the, so this really tremendous um, pressure that we're all facing to, to finally figure out left wing media. And I think that we're still failing. <laughs> and I have to fully include myself in there because I really am at a loss of what to do. Um, but I think also, though, that, you know, mainstream media is going to continue to to be bad and collapse. And, it, it, you know, where 30 years ago would have been completely possible for a radical to have a mainstream media career in Canada. And I think that's really important to mention, right? It was not always like this. It has actually gotten far, far worse. I mean, since I wrote the book, the number is now up to 3,000 job cuts within within the media sectors. So, you know, if anybody's hoping that as like left wing perspectives can be can be seen within mainstream media, like like in some places, <laughs> but it's going to be super rare. It's harder and harder and it's only going to get harder. And I think that we're going to see a, a, a bigger exodus of left wing people from mainstream positions because they just can't stomach it anymore. Like you're either there in a protected job as in you're not dealing with bullshit every single day. And so you're OK. Or you're not and you're dealing with that bullshit every day and you will you will reach your limit. And then then you have to decide, do you leave journalism altogether or do you start something on your own? So I think during the pandemic, there's been a lot of really great initiatives started. And then in the journalism from a lot of these initiatives have been excellent and really, really necessary. But um, I don't I don't the whiteness within it is a real, real problem. And I and I'm part of it and I really don't know uh, how we get out of it. I think the, that you're working to subvert it, and that's something, right? Like, I think that uh, the book's, <laughs> like, beautiful critique of CBC is is really, like, important. Like, you just straight up point out that CBC um, is rooted in nostalgia and nationalism, and that really limits what they can, what they can do, right? And, and what sorts of subjective attachments they're like reproducing in the average Canadian uh, viewer like the, you know all of these things are happening in ways that people aren't I don't think uh, aware enough of like um, the way that the actual format of CBC's you know content reinforces a certain like acquiescence to the status quo like that's not something oh, yeah. that is necessarily on people's radar but it's it's a powerful force for just like normalization, I think, in Canada. Oh, um, the specific it, tone of discourse on CBC. Yeah, well, it's so true, right? So so a lot of people know that I listen to The Current every morning and I'm just like genuinely blown away by how shitty it is. Like I, I this is not an act, right? Like I, <laughs> I am... I am scandalized daily at how shitty it is. And then you can go to any show and the quality is just... It's so bad. It's so, it's so bad. Um, and yeah, you've so pointed out too that there's a real gap between like the stuff that CBC offers like digitally, which can be really hard hitting and analytical, and the stuff that is more foregrounded, which is almost 
always superficial and vapid. Yeah, yeah. Like their 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 investigations are great, and um and you know I know that there's there's great journalists doing that that work, uh but you know this is a this is a place where management um is is awful and where people are worked uh, into the ground until they until they have to quit or until they die, and you know that that's going to create a certain kind of environment and as it's uh, you know being cut to, to the to the bone uh, the pressure just mounts on everybody and the quality just you know drops i and i and i think that uh, this is why i listen to the current because i think it is really important because it, the, the the nostalgia and the cultural location of the canadian broadcasting corporation in the imaginations of canadians is very powerful and people have it on in their car and they have it on in the background and they're not necessarily listening to it but it it it, it first of all is feeding them with this like vacant bullshit often that you know you're just kind of like cookbooks gardening are you singing like yeah, I like all that stuff too, but like sports, sports, like, you know, unless you're talking about politics and sports. No, it's, it's, it's really, it's a really fascinating slide. And, um, and the problem, and this was, you know, something that I was very, I, I think is one of the biggest issues with media within the pandemic, you know, CBC got no pandemic money. Like the corporation operates on a budget that's about as, as big as the net profits of Rogers. And so we, you know, I, Again, I don't know what it's going to take for this corporation to turn itself around. I, I, I kind of suspect it won't turn itself around and it'll just mutate into this like beast that is unlistenable and insufferable. Like literally the only thing I can defend the CBC for these days is the fact that they have, you know, uh, reach in, in all communities of the country. <laughs> like really important. Uh, you know that that and that that but that, that but again that goes back to nation building and colonialism and all the stuff that the CBC so so rooted in, but um, you know but if you look at, at the sources that I that I cite for this book you know CBC looms large because they have that coverage all across Canada, and if I had if I had taken the CBC um, shows or 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 lo regional locations apart. Uh, they wouldn't have been quoted the most. You know, I mean, CTV did a lot of heavy lifting and Global in different parts of Canada did a lot of heavy lifting. But the but the media concentration is everywhere. And one of the things that I've been most concerned about is just how the post media um, newspapers started to do news. And so they have this like clickable checklist at the top of all their articles. And then you have to scroll through like 10 different 200 word articles to get to whatever the hell issue you're trying to read and in so doing it gives the illusion that we've got these long stories but basically what they've done is they've taken what would otherwise be eight proper long stories and just distilled them into sound bites and um and because post media owns so much of the daily newspapers in this country and you know less daily like several times weekly uh, that that is a profound impact on journalism in this country and i think uh, again, no one is talking about it. It's always in the context of cutbacks and cuts and cuts and cuts and audience. And, and of course, the elephant in the room in all of this is just how much these corporations, CBC especially, rely on the bad news and on the doom, doomy expression of this news to retain their audience, which means we will always be in the most crisis reporting of every aspect of this pandemic until it's over. Yeah, and, and one of the things that uh, the book talks about at length is the way that the Canadian media invented uh, or aggrandized issues with vaccine hesitancy, right? And that that oh, was like yeah. quite, quite costly. There's a kind of moral hazard built into it, I guess. Um, anyway, I could keep talking to you, but uh, I've got to let you go. Um, and I appreciate you making the time. No, I appreciate uh, the conversation. Thank you.